to my little friend. Hi everyone, it's Glenn People speaking, welcoming you to episode 9 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, also known as the BerettaCast. It's the podcast where we discuss all things, or at least many things, philosophical, theological, political, and anything that in any way takes my interest. Um, before I get started, a big thank you to Kelp and also to Dee Dee Warren for posting reviews of this podcast at the iTunes Store. If you do have access to the iTunes Store... Please feel free to, to look me up, the, uh, look me up by title, say hello to my little friend, and leave a review, yeah, if it's a good one, of course, otherwise don't. And having said that, let's press on to the subject of today's episode. Now today begins a two-part series on the moral argument for theism, and I'm going to address two questions. The first question is, what is the moral argument? That won't take very long at all, just a few minutes, and the bulk of these two episodes will be devoted to the question of whether or not the moral argument works, whether or not it's a good argument. So let's get started with the first of those two questions. What is the moral argument for theism? Well, the moral argument is an argument for the claim that there is a God. Uh, William Lane Craig, a well-known Christian philosopher and apologist, uh, routinely makes use of the moral argument, summing it up by saying that, quote, God makes sense of the objective moral values in the world, end quote. In a nutshell, that position is, and he says, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist, end quote. Now, objective moral values are moral claims that are true regardless of what we think of the facts. If an action like rape or torture is objectively wrong, then it would be wrong even if our social group or we ourselves personally felt that it was right or morally neutral. It didn't matter. We would be wrong. Christian philosopher C. Stephen Evans notes that this kind of moral argument is, and I quote, best construed probabilistically as a claim that God's existence provides the most probable or plausible explanation of a certain fact. In this case, the existence of moral obligations. A single version of the argument, he says, might go like this. One, Probably, unless there is a God, there cannot be objectively binding moral obligations. 2. There are objectively binding moral obligations. 3. Therefore, probably, there is a God. Now, versions of the argument have been widely used. Uh, John Locke, for example, used the argument when he said, I assume that there will be no one to deny the existence of God provided he recognizes either the necessity for some rational account of, of our life, or that there is a thing that deserves to be called virtue or vice, end quote. The supposition is clear. Unless there is a God, says Locke, we would not be able to account for the fact that anything really deserves to be called a virtue or a vice in an absolute sense. But, and Locke takes this for granted, Clearly, some things are worthy of such descriptions, and hence there must be a God. 
Bill Craig notes that a number of prominent philosophers who are not even believers in God, they're atheists, people like Bertrand Russell, Michael Ruse, or Friedrich Nietzsche, granted this point, but rather admit that there is a God, all three avoided the apparent difficulty by simply denying that there are any objective moral values in need of explanation. However, as Craig notes, and I agree, this runs counter to what many of us, perhaps even all of us, find intuitively plausible. So that, in very rough outline, is the moral argument, or at least that's the version that I'm interested in in these two episodes. The rest of this presentation, and the next, is devoted to the second question. Is the moral argument sound? Now, in order for any argument to be sound, the conclusion must follow logically from the premises, and the premises must be true, meaning that the conclusion will also be true because it follows from them. So let's look at the premises of the moral argument as I am going to defend it. And I will defend the following version of the argument. 1. If atheism is true, there cannot be objectively binding moral obligations. 2. There are objectively binding moral obligations. 3. Therefore, atheism is not true. Now, there's absolutely no doubt that the argument is valid. That is, the conclusion really does follow from the premises. But that doesn't tell us much about how good an argument is. So the only task in assessing the soundness of this moral argument is to ask whether or not the premises are actually true. So I'll start then with the first premise. If atheism is true, there cannot be objectively binding moral obligations. This discussion is going to be less about God directly then it is going to be about a branch of philosophy called meta-ethics. Meta-ethics is the study of ethics on a grand scale, not the study of moral issues like genetic engineering or the ethics of war or abortion or capital punishment or contracts or anything like that. Meta-ethics is the study of morality itself. What are moral judgments? When a person says that a thing is the right thing to do, before even asking whether or not they are right, meta-ethics asks, what are they even saying in the first place? When saying that something is right, what conditions are we describing? And how does an action come to meet those conditions? Are they actually meaning to describe factual conditions at all? These are the questions that meta-ethics deals with. The metaphysical issue involved in the moral argument revolves around explaining what moral facts are and how there could be any such facts in the absence of God. I'm going to delve into the issue in quite some depth for the sake of showing that these questions are not just something discussed in conservative Christian apologetics, but they go to the heart of serious questions that all moral modern philosophers, that's modern philosophers who study moral philosophy, not modern philosophers who are themselves moral, that all such philosophers are forced to face at some point. Reflecting on the current state of philosophical academia, a philosopher John Rist observes that we have, quote, what is widely admitted to be a crisis in contemporary debate about ethical foundations, end quote. He's right about the unwillingness in many circles in philosophy to even look squarely at the problem let alone try to solve it. For where it is solved, the solution is something that a great many philosophers, and people generally, 
find disconcerting. He says, There is reason to believe that the theoretical crisis about moral foundations underlies many of the more immediate personal and political decision-making, and that the confusion in much contemporary moral debate depends in part on a systematic unwillingness outside academia and often within it to look squarely at this crisis. End quote. The crisis, in simple terms, is how we can defensively claim that any moral judgment is true. Theists and non-theists alike, although fewer of the latter, have concluded that if there is no God, and hence we are to formulate our views on what constitutes morality without reference to anything in abo above or beyond the physical universe, then objective moral truths simply do not exist. Philosopher J. L. Mackey considered the moral argument to be one of the most powerful arguments for theism. He says, if there are objective m values, they make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. Thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of a god. End quote. But for Mackey, the response to the moral argument was not to give in and concede that there is a god, but rather to deny the existence of objective moral truth. There may be some sorts of values that people should, or at least like to, live by, but whatever they are, they are certainly, and I quote from Mackey, not a system of objective values and prescriptions, end quote. According to Mackey, although we do tend to feel that there are factual moral principles by which we can measure right and wrong, quote, it is easy to explain this moral sense as a natural product of biological and social evolution. End quote. Prominent philosopher of, of science Michael Ruse, who I'm rather fond of, his writings anyway, did not beat around the bush when he said, Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Oh, I, appreci I appreciate, he says, that when someone says, Love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and has no being beyond or without this. Morality is an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process, just as are other adaptations, and any deeper meaning is illusory. End quote. I like philosophers who don't waste words. They get to the point. Now, Ruth finds himself not really wanting to live with the lack of morality that he postulates, but he also finds himself unable to ultimately justify this uneasiness. On the one hand, he wants to say, and I quote, the man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says that 2 plus 2 equals 5, end quote. But his consistency obliges him to say, and he does say, that we all feel this way only because we share a common evolutionary heritage. The reason we feel this way about certain acts is not that they actually violate any fact-based standards of right and wrong, but because we have become genetically predisposed to think this way, inasmuch as that adaptation has been good for the survival of our species. Ethics is thus, or at least should be, an anti-realist discipline, that is, a discipline that does not look for truth,
but which looks for the way to do things that will get something done well, like aiding survival or something else. The heart of the problem is explaining what moral properties really are if they are not properties that depend on theological facts, like facts about God's nature, facts about the telos or the goal of creation, or facts about God's commands, or something else along these lines. It is really the question around which the enterprise of metaethics has been built, even if a large number of metaethicists don't spend much time talking about it. Here I will not spend a lot of time criticizing particular metaethical views, although I will spend some time doing that. I will instead explain the various positions that do exist, and I will argue that we are yet to see compelling foundations for the truth of any moral claim, aside from religious foundations, and hence to presuppose moral truths is really to presuppose the existence of God. I want to, quite early in this presentation, uh, make a note about moral terminology. It's good to, to clarify our terms as much as possible so that we don't end up equivocating or using language in a confused way. I need to make a distinction which most moral philosophers make and which should be made. The words ought, should, good, or, or similar terms can be used in more than one way, only one of which concerns me here. The two broad ways of using such terms involve speaking about the rational ought on the one hand and the moral ought on the other. The rational ought can be described as providing the means to an end. For example, if you are hungry, then you ought to eat something if you want to stop being hungry. In order to achieve world peace, then we ought to uh, do something. <laughs> if you can fill in that blank, you can make lots of money. There is nothing absolute about the way the word ought is used here, since it only gains its force by the extent to which we want the goal in question. The same is true of the word good when it is used in this rational way. I'm a good lumberjack if I cut down trees quickly. I'm a good assassin even if I have, sorry, if I have good aim with a rifle, even though it's not good to be an assassin, morally speaking. None of these comments pass moral judgment. They merely describe effectiveness. The distinction between the moral ought and the rational ought can be clearly illustrated by saying, if you want that man dead, then you, rationally, ought to kill him. Although, of course, really, you, morally, ought not to kill him. The moral ought passes judgment regardless of the end that we want. So having made this important distinction in language, I'll move on to the meta-ethical issue. So let's explore the meta-ethical options. I'm going to survey the various meta-ethical positions. And in the notes that I'm going to make available on my website, on the blog, for these uh, two sessions, there'll be a diagram which I think is quite helpful in getting a, a visual representation of these categories, but you can check that out after. But basically there's a map of the positions that one might take with respect to meta-ethics. There's, on the one side, moral realism, and on the other side, uh, there's anti-realism. Moral realism is any view in which some moral claims are factually correct. Since there are such facts according to realism, judgments 
on matters of norms and values are literally true if they get the facts right, according to moral philosopher Christian Illies. Moral anti-realism is any view in which all moral judgments fail to be true claims. Now, they might fail to be true claims in one of two ways. On the one hand, they might not be claims at all. They might express no proposition because they're just kind of expressions of emotion or will or something else. On the other hand, they might fail to be true because they're all propositions, okay, but they're all false. That's what you call an error theory of morality or nihilism. So, let's begin with looking at anti-realism. And in particular, there's a position within anti-realism called verificationism. And it's a species of anti-realism called non-cognitivism, which says that moral claims don't really express propositions. So let's look at this. The early to mid-20th century logical pol positivists would tell us that moral claims don't even have the good luck to be false. They're just nonsensical, not conveying anything meaningful, any more than a collection of words like ambulance were divided by lollipop or, or some other ridiculous string of words. That can't be said to be meaningful, and nor can moral claims, according to logical positivism. To affirm any moral doctrine as true, then, is to use words in a mistaken way, according to this approach. The logical positivists have two criteria through which they filter anything that claims to be a judgment or any proposition. The first criteria is the necessary truth criterion of meaning, and the second criterion is the verifiability criterion. So if any statement is going to be meaningful, then it will be necessarily true or analytically true or true by definition, or else it will be scientifically verifiable. And if it doesn't meet either of those two uh, conditions, then a proposition has no meaning, so it can't be true or false. A.J. Eyre is probably the most uh, widely renowned uh, philosopher who fits into this category of logical positivism. He summed up the position like this. The criterion which we use to test the genuineness of apparent statements of fact is the criterion of verifiability. We say that a sentence is factually significant to any given person if and only if he knows how to verify the proposition which it purports to express. That is, if he knows what observations would lead him under certain conditions to accept the proposition being true or reject it as being false. If, on the other hand, the putative proposition is of such a character that the assumption of its truth or falsehood is consistent with any assumption whatsoever concerning the nature of his future experience, then, as far as he is concerned, it is, if not a tautology, a mere pseudo-proposition. The sentence expressing it may be emotionally significant to him, but it is not literally significant. So what, then, of moral claims, such as the claim that rape is wrong? Well, it's not analytically true, since wrong is not tied up in the meaning of the word rape, or if it were, the question rape is wrong makes no sense. It's like saying, is rape rape? So, it's clear that a statement like rape is wrong is meant to be a synthetic proposition, bringing two ideas to get together, the idea of rape and the idea of wrongness.
This means that if the statement is to be meaningful, the logical positivist would have us think its truth must be verifiable. But since its truth is not verifiable, it's not meaningful at all. And in the sense of verification intended by error, such claims are not verifiable since verification is, is concerned with empirical verification. Now, to most people, I suspect, the verificationist claim has the appearance of being falsified by the evidence. Now, the evidence consists in the following phenomenon. When people make moral judgments, when you and I make judgments like rape is wrong, what they are saying is meaningful even if it is false. The reality of this counterexample does not seem to be very difficult to confirm. Many people mean many different things when they use the words right, wrong, good, evil, and so forth, but it's a fairly conservative claim to say that many people mean at least something by those words. They might find it difficult to defend the claim that this is what moral words mean, but that's another matter. Since they do mean something by those words, even when their claims might not be verifiable, it follows that a claim need not be verifiable in order to be meaningful. Now, A.J. Eyre saw this objection coming, so he sought refuge from it by allowing that moral judgments might not be nonsensical in any pejorative sense after all, since they are not truth-apt in the first place. They are, he said, expressions of feelings or attitudes. He says, The exhortations to moral virtue are not propositions at all, but ejaculations or commands which are designed to provoke the reader to action of a certain sort. Accordingly, they do not belong to any branch of philosophy or science. As for the expressions of ethical judgments, we have not yet determined how they should be classified, but inasmuch as they are certainly neither definitions, nor comments upon definitions, nor quotations, we may say decisively that they do not belong to ethical philosophy. A strictly philosophical treatise on ethics, therefore, should make no ethical pronouncements. And more explicitly still, he says, If I say stealing money is wrong, I produce a sentence which has no factual meaning, that is, expresses no proposition which can be either true or false. It is as if I had written, Stealing money! Followed by three exclamation points where the shape and thickness of the exclamation marks show, by suitable convention, that a special sort of moral disapproval is a feeling which is being expressed. It is clear that there is nothing said here which can be true or false. Another man may disagree with me about the wrongness of stealing, in the sense that he may not have the same feelings about stealing as I have, and he may quarrel with me on account of my moral sentiments, but he cannot, strictly speaking, contradict me. For in saying that a certain type of action is right or wrong, I am not making any factual statement, not even a statement about my own state of mind. I am merely expressing certain moral sentiments, and the man who is ostensibly contradicting me is merely expressing his moral sentiments. So that there is plainly no sense in asking which of us is in the right. What neither of us is asserting is a genuine proposition. Now, as defences of verificationism against this particular kind of objection, responses like these look clearly contrived for no other purpose than propping up verificationism. Expressed as an argument, 
the defense goes like this. If moral judgments were meaningful, truth-apt propositions, then verificationism would be false. 2. Many moral judgments have the appearance of being meaningful and truth-apt. 3. But we know, says A.J. Eyre, that verificationism is true. 4. Therefore it must be the case that moral judgments are not truth-apt, and their meaningfulness lies elsewhere, like in their emotional value. So Eyre's response is clearly unlikely to persuade simply by saying, well, your perception of moral claims must be mistaken then, and that's really all he does. As a response to the objection, the argument is kind of circular. There is, however, a far more serious objection to verificationism, and this objection is, in my view, decisive. It's the reason that logical positivism did not take over the world of moral philosophy. All it took was for someone to ask if the proposition, in order to be meaningful, a statement must be analytically true or empirically verifiable, was itself a meaningful proposition. Well, is it? Is it analytically true? No. Is it empirically verifiable? No. So it's, it's self-defeating. Do you see, if logical positivism were correct, it would render this proposition meaningless. The alternative is that the above statement need not be analytically true or verifiable in order to be meaningful, but if that's the case, then it's simply false, because you know, to say that is to contradict the statement itself. Either way, the pro prospects for logical positivism are not good. Alan Donegan summed up the simplicity of this controversy as succinctly as anyone when he said, The verifiability principle was no sooner advanced than critics pointed out that, if cognitively meaningful, it is self-refuting. Hence, logical positivists were early agreed that it was to be interpreted as a recommendation and as non-cognitive. Well, that's not a particularly compelling principle now, is it? If you don't particularly feel like living up to the verificationist principle, you can just say, thanks, but no thanks. So let's leave logical positivism and verificationism in the pages of history where it belongs, and move on to talk more broadly about the anti-realist approach called expressivism. Expressivism is just any claim that moral judgments, rather than conveying facts, express something else, be it emotion, will, or something else. Arguably, the most able defender of expressivism was R. M. Hare. Incidentally, if you're familiar with a very capable Christian philosopher writing today called John Hare, R. M. Hare is his father, was his father, he's now the late R. M. Hare. And in distinguishing his view from that of era theorists like John Mackey, Hare introduces his basic outlook on moral language thus. Since the beginning of recorded history, people have been using moral language or more primitive precursors of it, and thinking that they meant something by it that was sometimes true. It's hard to believe that they were simply mistaken all that time. Of course, there are examples of su such mistaken use of language. For much of the world's history until recently, people have talked about witches. We know now, though in some other parts of the world they do not, that there are no such people as witches in the sense of people who really have magical powers as opposed to pretending to have them. So the people who talked in past times about witches and even burnt women to whom they attached the name were mistaken in thinking that they had picked out a property which some women really had. 
And according to unbelievers, the words God and the devil were like this too. But do we have to believe that words like right and wrong are the same? I shall be arguing that we do not, and that all the time when people used words like right and wrong, they were saying something that they did want to say, and which it was useful to say, and which was even in some sense sometimes true. There was a mistake, especially on the part of some philosophers, but it was not the mistake that Mackey thought he had detected. Mackey thought that all people along the... Sorry, all people... People all along were using the words which they thought picked out properties that actions done in the world really had, and that they were mistaken in this, that there are no such properties. I shall be arguing in contrast that they were mistaken in thinking that th that was what they meant. I shall call this mistake descriptivism. Whether most ordinary people committed this mistake, I doubt, but many philosophers certainly did. Okay, so he's taking a view called descriptivism, where moral claims are supposed to describe facts, and he is rejecting it. What is perhaps most striking about Hare's position is not its ethical claims, but its psychological and linguistic claims. His position is that, generally speaking, when people, or at least philosophers, make moral claims, what they say is not really what they mean. The rhetoric that they use suggests that they are describing states of affairs, when in actual fact they are making prescriptions, expressions of will, or imperatives. Hare considered that the distinction between descriptivism and non-descriptivism was the basic distinction that all moral philosophers should be making, rather than pointless discussions about realism and anti-realism. So he's kind of distinguishing between non-cognitivism and cognitivism. He had no time for what he appeared to see as a metaphysical pontification on the part of moral realists who claimed to be talking about facts rather than language. He says, The only way, it seems to me, in which a realist can pretend to be doing ontology and not just conceptual analysis, ignore the big words, you'll see his point in a moment, is for him to hold a crude correspondence theory of truth. According to such a theory, for a moral statement to be true, would be for there to be, out in the world, some solid entity called a moral fact. Because I do not believe that there are any solid entities called facts out in the world, moral or any other sort, and do not even know what it would be like for there to be, I cannot discuss such a theory. The world, contra Wittgenstein in the Tractatus, consists of things, not of facts, as Strawson pointed out long ago. Now, Hare does not cite anyone claiming to be a moral realist who says that there are entities called moral facts. In fact, I know of no moral realist who says that there are such things. Reference to moral properties, however, is not so uncommon among moral realists. Hare's objection here seems about as reasonable as objecting to people who believe in corners on the grounds that there are no entities out there called corners. We could just say to him, well, do there need to be? There are properties called corners on objects. Harris says that the view of moral facts that he has just described entails a crude correspondence view of truth. A correspondence view of truth is the view that statements are true if they correspond to the way the world is. What he means by crude is not really explained. He does use that word, however, to gain further rhetorical mileage when he goes on to talk about what makes any claim true. He says of a task that is apparently beneath him, 
but i do not think that i shall be asked to discuss the crude correspondence theory i have just mentioned because i should be surprised to find anyone holding it who understands the issues i'm going to set aside his obvious snobbery the fact is many philosophers hold to a correspondence view of truth as do most people i suspect and many people believe that moral claims are true because they correspond to facts about the way things are he's just pontificating about what sensible people really think and he's wrong on the face of it the fact that people's language has the appearance of attempting to describe facts when they make moral claims is a fairly good reason to believe that this is what they intend to do even if they're wrong i therefore throw my lot in with a man named dr brink david brink who says cognitivism is the natural starting point for any domain whose discourse is descriptive when a set of judgments are expressed in the declarative mood involve singular reference to and quantification over various sorts of entities and employ predicates as modifiers of noun and verb phrases gosh these people waste words i'm sorry i'll read it anyway it is natural to treat them as making cognitively meaningful assertions having truth conditions people come to reject cognitivist views when they become convinced that there are insurmountable metaphysical epistemological or semantic objections to a cognitivist view in other words in english if a sentence looks like a sentence that is trying to describe facts then the most natural starting point is to accept that this is precisely what the speaker means it to be i mean who would know better than the person uttering the sentence and non-cognitivists need to provide arguments for why we should not use language that way or why we should start to view moral judgments in a different way and they have offered such arguments so let's turn to those arguments now the first of these arguments that i will look at is the argument from moral diversity and the second is the argument from motivation in the first argument the claim is that people tend to disagree much more when it comes to moral judgments than when it comes to fact judgments and this phenomenon should be explained by saying that moral judgments are really expressions of emotion or will or something else rather than genuine fact claims in order for this argument to the best explanation to be effective two things must be clear first the phenomenon to be explained must really exist and secondly the proposed explanation must be the best one so let me respond firstly by noting that many moral beliefs are held on the basis of factual claims and hence the more fundamental disagreements are often over those metaphysical fact claims rather than the resulting moral claims as francis beckwith and greg kokel explain and i quote in india cows roam free because hindus consider them sacred in america we eat beef at first glance it would seem that we have conflicting values but both of our cultures hold that it is wrong to eat other human beings in america when grandma dies we don't eat her we bury her in india hindus don't eat cattle because they believe that the cow may be grandma reincarnated in another form in other words what causes the different behavior is not really a moral belief but a factual belief namely a metaphysical belief in reincarnation joining in with beckwith and kokel charles pigden actually one of my doctoral supervisors agrees he says do moral disagreements exceed factual ones consider current controversies between liberal social reformers and defenders of the family 
True, they disagree morally about the rights and wrongs of sexuality and the laws to which we should be subject, but they also disagree about factual issues. Polemicists for the family often suggest that chaos and or dictatorship will ensue if the family is further undermined. Their opponents are less pessimistic. Controversialists differ about the likely results of various laws. The antiquity of the nuclear family, its naturalness, its tendency to drive people insane, and its utility as social glue. Moral disagreements do not exceed factual ones here. Again, take differences between Friedmanite neoconservatives and socialists of various hues. They disagree not only about the moral weight that should be given to the plight of the poor, but about the actual consequence of letting unfettered capitalism rip. The same goes for cross-cultural conflicts. Moral disagreement is frequently marked by a wide divergence as to the nature of non-moral reality. Indeed, the moral practices of some remote societies often strike me as less bizarre than their factual beliefs. End quote. While Beckwith and Kokel's example of reincarnation has more to do with metaphysical factual claims, the factual claims that Pigden surveys have more to do with facts about consequences than metaphysical facts, so he fills out the picture that it is really all kinds of factual claims that people and different cultures do not share in common, and this, these disagreements are more prevalent than moral disagreements. But secondly, is there an obvious reason to suppose that the best explanation of this phenomenon, even if it were a real phenomenon, is that moral claims aren't really attempts at descriptions of fact? This is far from obvious. There is a range of explanatory stories that might do the trick just as well, or better. One explanation is that maybe some cultures are just privy to more information than others. For example, special divine revelation, or scientific discovery, or even just the conclusions delivered by good reason. We already grant that some cultures just are better informed when it comes to science and the universe, so there's no obvious barrier to thinking that some cultures simply know better than others in a certain field, like ethics. A second explanation, although not one that I'm tempted by, is that the reason different cultures disagree more on moral matters than on factual disputes is that moral claims are truth-apt, but they're just mistaken because there are no moral properties of anything. Or thirdly, maybe there is a lot of disagreement just because moral philosophy is really difficult. It's far from obvious that the best explanation of moral disagreement is that moral claims are not what we take them to be, but are just expressions of emotional will. To suppose that disagreement entails a lack of cognitive intent is just a non-sequitur. It doesn't follow at all. The second argument against cognitivism that I will deal with here is the argument from motivation. Factual claims, so this argument goes, do not motivate us, but moral claims do motivate us. Hence they are not factual claims, but expressions of will, emotion, or something else. This was the argument of David Hume. He says, Since morals, therefore, have an influence on the actions and affections, it follows that they cannot be derived from reason, and that because reason alone, as we, as we have already proved, can never have any such influence. Morals excite passions, and produce or prevent actions. 
reason of itself is utterly impotent in this particular. The rules of morality, therefore, are not conclusions of our reason. This, too, is an argument to the best explanation. The phenomenon is that one kind of belief, moral belief, motivates us, but another kind doesn't. The explanation given is that the former kind of belief is not cognitive, but expressive of will, emotion, attitude, or something else, while the latter beliefs are fact beliefs. This special feature of moral beliefs, namely their motivational nature, is thought by some cognitivists to present a real difficulty, even if it is solvable. For example, Michael Smith's book, The Moral Problem, identifies the problem of morality as this, the problem of saying that morality is objective and that it is motivational in this way. We'd think it odd, he said, that if my friend convinces me while the world vision collector makes his way down the street towards my house, that I ought to give money for a famine relief, and I reply when the collector knocks on my door by saying, look, I know that I should give to famine relief, but I haven't been convinced that I have any reason to do so. That would be strange. On the contrary, Smith says, being convinced that you ought to do something is to be convinced that you have a reason to do something. That is to say, it provides you with motivation to do it. He says, moral judgments seem to be, or imply, opinions about the reasons that we have for behaving in certain ways. And, other things being equal, having such opinions is a matter of finding ourselves with a corresponding motivation to act. But if this is a necessary feature of a moral belief, how could there be morally objective facts? After all, we all have different desires or dispositions to acquire desires. What you find yourself desiring or being motivated to do, I might not. And so we have, says Smith, the main problem of ethics, the discord between moral objectivity and the fact that moral beliefs are motivators. Okay. The non-cognitivist assumes that the fact that one has a moral belief entails that one is all, always motivated to act on it. But this actually is not true. Moral beliefs tend to motivate us, but they can fail to do so at times. Even if they hardly ever fail, we can imagine them failing to do so. Now, I know that I ought not to sleep with my neighbor, but I've got to say I'm, I'm motivated to do it. So that's one case. It's not true, by the way, but you can imagine it being true. Moreover, other beliefs actually do have a similar ability to motivate us in relevantly similar circumstances. When I tell my children, your ice cream is on the table, somehow they become motivated to come to the dining room and sit at the table. Who would have thought? Of course, they could fail to be motivated in at least a couple of ways. They mightn't believe me. They might think I'm lying. Uh, they might think there's nothing but broccoli on their plate and they're not falling for my trick to get them to the table to eat their broccoli. They are smarter than that. I tried that last week. Or maybe they just don't want any ice cream. I can't imagine that ever happening, but it's possible. In which case their belief that there is ice cream at the table would not motivate them to come to the table. But this is also true of moral beliefs. If I tell a young man, you really ought not to go drag racing with your friends on the city streets at night, he could fail to be motivated in exactly the same way. He might not believe me. 
Maybe it's not true, he thinks, that I ought not to do this. Maybe I've just drawn uh, an improper inference, or my intuitions are wrong. He, he might think that. Or perhaps he knows that what I'm saying is true, but he likes drag racing so much that his desire to drag race eclipses his desire to do what is morally right, or actually causes him to not desire it anymore, perhaps even despising the thought because it interferes with his social life. In other words, when moral claims are construed as factual claims, as I construe them, moral claims and non-moral claims seem to have to meet the same conditions in order to motivate us. There's no difference. This is entirely compatible with the claim that people are such that we just do tend to desire to do what is right, thus explaining why moral beliefs nearly always do have a motivational effect, but what I have said is that neither moral beliefs nor non-moral beliefs will motivate us in the absence of the appropriate desire. It's the desire that motivates us, not the moral claim. Therefore, the fact that moral beliefs tend to motivate us doesn't count against their being factual beliefs, because other factual beliefs can do the same thing. Okay, let's revise what has been discussed in this presentation. I've looked at what the moral argument for theism is. I've also looked at arguments against moral judgments being fact judgments in the first place. That's important, because the moral argument supposes that morality is a fact-based enterprise. It presupposes cognitivism, realism, the view that moral judgments are statements of fact and some of them are correct. That's where we are so far. Next, I will turn away from arguments about moral anti-realism. And I will look at the way cognitivism, realism, works. And whether or not it is plausible in the absence of religious facts. So that will be the climax of the moral argument. And I'll do this when, say hello to my little friend's friend, maybe I do have friends, wouldn't that be a nice thought, returns in the next episode. For now, however, Let's have one of these. That's right, it's this week in history, in the week 22nd to 28th of June. June 22nd, 431, the Council of Ephesus opens. The main achievement of the Council was the condemnation of Nestorianism, the heresy that taught that Christ was actually two persons, one human and one divine. June 22, 1844, founder of Mormonism Joseph Smith is accused of instigating a riot when his followers smashed the printing press of a newspaper that was critical of his secret teaching on polygamy. Smith flees from arrest. Dum 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 dum. June 24, 64, Roman Emperor Nero begins persecuting Christians. June 24, 1178, five Canterbury monks report something exploding on the moon. The only recorded time an asteroidal impact has been observed with the naked eye. I said naked. June 24, 1531, John of Leyden, the leader of an Anabaptist insurrection in Westphalia, is crowned King of Sion in Munster. His reign did not last very long. June 26, 1858, Mormons again. The United States Army entered Salt Lake City in order to restore peace and install Alfred Cumming, a non-Mormon, as governor. Mormon residents had opposed the replacement of Brigham Young, who had declared martial law and forbade U.S. troops from entering Utah. 
Dum 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 dum. There were sporadic raids made by the Mormon militia against the winter encampment of the army, but that was the extent of the Utah War. June 26, 1932, Francis Schaeffer attends a Presbyterian church meeting where a Unitarian spoke out against the truth of the Bible and its teachings. A young lady named Edith had prepared a rebuttal, but before she could speak, Francis stood up and shredded the speaker's arguments. Edith was impressed, and after she had read her remarks, Francis was impressed as well. He walked her home the beginning of their lifelong relationship and ministry together. June 26th, 1977, Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict the XVI 16th, was named a cardinal in 1981. He would become the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the current name of the Office of the Holy Inquisition, which was quite probably changed for public relations reasons. June 28, 195, Irenaeus, 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 I should know that, Bishop of Lyons, Lyons in France, and one of the most important Christian writers of the second century, dies. He argues that tradition is key in sustaining orthodoxy and he was instrumental in raising the authority of the Roman bishop on the historical road to the formation of the papacy. And that's this week in history. As mentioned earlier, when we come back for episode number 10, 10, my goodness, 10, the magic number, double digits, we will be moving on to the second installment of the moral argument for Christian theism. Well, the theism in general, but yeah, all the other theisms can go to hell. <laughs> so until then, it's so long from say hello to my little friend.